Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Good Humans podcast with me, Cooper Chapman, chatting to the world's best about the inspiring stories that got them to where they are today. What's going on, you good humans? Welcome to a very fun and special episode of Good Humans Podcast. This is Good Human Guest episode number 88 with a good friend of mine by the name of Jahan Kalanta. Jahan's a criminal lawyer and has a huge TikTok following and he's just doing some really good stuff in the world. If it's your first time to this podcast, make sure you hit that like and subscribe button. It does help us move up the charts. We do bring you podcasts multiple times a week and I'd love you to go check them out. This Podcast has grown so much over the last month, and I thank everyone who is tuning in. Please do go and tell a friend about it if you're enjoying it. Also, a massive thank you to our sponsor, Drink Arepa. Arepa is a brain function drink. They take care of my brain. They take care of all of my guests' brain, and yeah, I absolutely love it. I use it every single day. So it's a neuroscience-backed drink. It's been clinically proven to improve the short-term performance, but also your long-term brain health. You can check out everything on their website, drinkarepa.com. It will be in the show notes. I use the product every single day. It is a massive, massive help for me and my brain. If you use the code GOODHUMAN, you get a huge 25% off everything on their website. Go check it out. You're going to love it. It'll be in the show notes. All right, today's episode, Jahan, far out. This guy is a wealth of knowledge, but also just a bloody legend. We had a really nice chat down in his office in WeWork down in Sydney. We've been talking a little bit uh, through TikTok. I've watched him blow up and got a lot of valuable information out of the content that he put out really giving some good behind-the-scenes understanding of the law and especially criminal law. So we did a lot of hypotheticals in this chat. We got into his story, which was really cool to understand where he came from, his family background, and why he's so passionate about what he is. So this is a great chat. If you like it, share it with a friend. If you think there's some value in it, share it with somebody in your community. I bloody love this chat. I know you will too. Let's jump straight into it. Welcome to Good Humans Podcast, Jahan Kalanta. How you going, mate? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. Mate, thank you for having me down in your WeWork offices. This is my second podcast in a WeWork office. And after I did the last one, I watched We Crash, the TV show about WeWork. And I was so blown away. These places are so cool. Yeah, it's got a real vibe to it. So a funny story about this particular WeWork. Uh, we used to have this really traditional law firm in like a brownstone in the city. And it was just super depressing. You'd go in there, no one smiled, no one was happy. Then one day I came here, it's got this beautiful light well in the middle. And there happened to also be a um, an agency downstairs where they did really like funky art and all sorts of stuff. And I sort of fell in love and thought, well, you know, brownstone seriousness is not me. More like, you know, a little bit out there is a little bit more vibe, my vibe. Well, definitely this um, office fits your vibe. You've got the crazy mustache that a lot of people <laughs> know you from on TikTok and social media now. And I'm really excited to get to know the story a bit more behind you. There's so much, obviously, of you plastered around the internet now, giving you takes on different legal advice and different cases. But I want to get to know the person a little bit behind it. But the first question I do open with is, what are you grateful for right now? Um, I am super grateful that, um, well, there's a lot to be grateful for. And it's funny, every morning I wake up, I write out the three things I'm grateful for. I'm grateful to be able to talk to you and really have an opportunity to, I guess, share stories that maybe don't get spoken about so much. I'm grateful for my family, my friends. I'm so lucky to have the most beautiful circle of people around me. And I'm grateful for my health. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 35 years old now and I feel like I'm getting stronger and smarter every single day. So I'm in a good place. I love that. It's funny. I actually listened to a podcast recently and it's like that happiness supposedly goes from the most when you're a kid. And then once you get to your mid thirties, it kind of dips and your early forties, it dips and then comes back up in your fifties. But you sound like an outlier and you're at the best in your life right now at 35. I love that. I can tell you that it is for anyone who's, you know, going through the slog, there are some challenges, but every day life's good. Yeah. I love that, man. Well, I want to get to know your story a bit. So let's rewind back to the start. Where were you born? Where'd you grow up? And what was your sort of family dynamics to create the sort of man you are today? 
Uh, really good question. So I was born in Austria en route to Australia. My parents, both my mother and my father, are Iranian. So they were both Iranian um, people. And I don't know if anyone knows about, but in Iran had a, a pretty big revolution where they went from a um, under the leadership of a monarchy to an Islamic republic. And that took place really... 83 to 89-ish. There was a lot of stuff. Before that, there was a horrible war in Iran as well, the Iran-Iraq conflict. And so my parents were refugees who left Iran to seek a better life for themselves and for me. Um, my mom was pregnant. And so before we arrived in Australia, um, they traveled to Austria and I was born in Austria, kind of like stateless, I guess, on, on, on route to Australia before that we came here. Wow, so interesting. It's like such a unique story to get to Australia being... Yeah, of escaping that conflict over there and then setting you up as a first kind of generation Australian now. So, yeah, what was childhood like from what you can remember? You said you had some younger siblings. So once your parents got here, you... Um, yeah, so, yeah, so so it's 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 super funny because I... Look, I'm 35. I don't have kids. I have, um, you know, I have a practice that I love and a, and a fiancé and life's really good. But they had a child at like 25, 26 and they fled everything they knew, you know. So um, my parents are both physicians. They're both doctors. Um, they were doctors in Iran. But then we came to Australia and they had to retrain and they had to reskill. And so uh, both my mother and my father worked odd jobs jobs while simultaneously caring for me and studying to get their accreditation. And so I remember my childhood, thankfully, my grandparents were here and they were able to help sort of manage that load a little bit. But I just remember these poor people, like my mom and dad worked so, so, so hard. All of my childhood, I remember they were like, they were there, they did their best, they were wonderful parents, but they were so busy just trying to like, kind of, I guess, make it in Australia and make it in a new context. Um, Around 10 years old, they divorced. They decided they weren't right for one another. And so I kind of went uh, weak about mum and dad. Um, and then my dad remarried when I was, I want to say, 13, 14. And I have half brothers and sisters now. Um, so it was really interesting being like an only child to like 15 and then suddenly having siblings, which was pretty cool. Um, but I remember the first few years in Australia were really hard. Like they really, I can't imagine how hard it would have been for them, honestly. Yeah, wow. It's crazy when people come from another country and have to reset themselves back up, especially I can imagine for your parents, it would feel like such a big step back having done all your training to be physicians and then have to relearn, I guess, probably in a new language, new practices, new culture. It's like so different, but it'd be such a hard step back to just reset your life back up. But obviously now with the life you're living, you're probably super grateful for the opportunities you have been given. So heading into high school, where were you growing up? Were you in Sydney? And then what, um, yeah, what was high school like for you? So I went to North Sydney Boys. So I grew up here in Sydney. Um, North Sydney Boys is a selective school. So here in Australia, there are certain schools that if you have an academic gift, um, the government will support that by putting you in programs that sort of uh, are geared towards that. And, you know, without arrogance, I'm, I've always been pretty clever. I'm a pretty book smart kind of guy, not street smart whatsoever, but book smart. I can learn from a book really well. And so I, I went into a, a selective school. Um, it was an interesting sort of experience. Um, you know, uh, it was hard because it was all so geared on academics and you can, you know, I was a smart guy, but I wasn't that, 1% genius. And so kind of in other schools, you might get bullied because you're not particularly sporty. In our school, you might get bullied because your, your scores weren't as high as other people, right? And uh, it was it was a bit challenging. I was one of only, I think, two or three um, Middle Eastern kids in the entire school. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't really feel like I had a gang or a clique. And, and there was a little bit of, it's gotten a lot better, but there was also some casual racism that just sort of existed and permeated Australian culture as I was growing up. So Upon reflection, it was a bit more challenging than it should have been, but I'm glad I went through it. Yeah, it sounds like you can reflect on it and admire that you probably built a lot of resilience through those years of your life. And it sounds like by going to Sydney Boys School and being quite academic, maybe it would have been a little less bullying than if you were at a real sporty school if you were super into academic. Because I know I went to a sports high and as bad as it was, there was the kind of the nerds and then the sporty kids. So coming to a school that was a bit more academic it sounds like maybe there wasn't that level of bullying, but then obviously being an immigrant, it makes it a little bit different having, yeah, that sort of something that you can't even change being the sort of core of where bullying comes from. Seems like, yeah, it sucks. No, it, I, look, it, it, 
one of the challenges of being an immigrant is that you kind of always feel like you're just a guest in Australia. Like, you know, like you have to earn your right to be here. And, you know, I, I it, it's, it's subtle in a lot of ways. Like, you know, my parents always were like, look, we're lucky to be in Australia. It's a beautiful country. You know, you've got to be on your best behavior all the time. Almost like you, you know, it's almost like you have to earn the right to be in your own family. And it's one of those things that I don't think gets talked about enough that, you know, we're here, we're contributing, we're doing our best. We are Australian. We're as Australian as anyone else. Um, And when other people make you feel like you are not for no reason, that is something that's really disappointing and upsetting. But, you know, as you get older, you start to realize that's really on them. There's something, there's something wrong with them. Not so much you, they're just weird. Mm, And it can be hard to build that kind of self-awareness, especially as a youngster, but hopefully from conversations like this and people getting to maybe expand their mind and curiosity a bit, they can, yeah, be a bit more self-aware and realize, you know what? Generally, it is a reflection on the way the person's feeling when they're being cruel or criticizing. And that's something that I really try and push through my messaging. It's good to know that you feel the same way. One of the, I mean, one of the biggest lessons I've learned as an adult, and I, and I say this to, to everyone is don't discriminate against people ever but certainly not against arbitrary characteristics because you know what? There are so few wonderful people in this world. If you start saying I won't be their friend because I don't know, they're not, they're too tall or I won't be their friend because they're too this, you're screwed, man. Cause it's really hard to find a good tribe of people. You cannot afford in any way, shape or form to like cut people off over nonsense. You really need to like take people at the, the value and the energy and um, their values. Yeah. I bloody love that. It's something that I'm very, very dialed into, I feel like, and something that I continue and strive to be better at every day is to live into my values, which yeah, good to hear we're on the same page. So coming to the end of high school, what was your mind at for where you wanted to go with your career? Because obviously now you're um, a big time criminal lawyer here in Sydney. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't like that when you finished school though. No. So it, it, it's so funny in, in, in the, the Persian culture that I'm raised in academics is very, very important, you know, so you can be a doctor, a lawyer or a failure, you know, that's the kind of joke <laughs> that they make all the time and kind of um, I, to sort of rebel against my family. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go into finance. I'm going to go and make a ton of money because also growing up as an, an uh, you know, as, the child of of immigrants we really struggled financially until i was in my teens like we really my parents did a great job of not making me feel want but i know how hard they must have worked having to start over my dad delivered chinese food my mom worked at stores like they you know and, and that's a real step back when you're a doctor going to doing that sort of work so um around the time i was you know in my early teens they had been qualified and all of a sudden we had more money, we had more status. And so to me, a big part of what I thought you needed to do to be a successful, happy human is to have resources. And I thought, well, banks have resources. I'll go be in finance. And at the time, it was really um, the the market was paying way above decent salaries for, for young, talented financial you know people and so that 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 attracted me to, to finance and so I went to study at Sydney University and I did a Bachelor of Commerce there and then I went into the financial sector and it was terrible dude it was just not me mm. um I remember you know I would work I worked at various banks and some were better than others but every day I was just like what am I doing this just is not me I'm not connected to the end goal it doesn't resonate with me and it really was it was actually probably one of the worst times of my life because I'd made it like I'd gotten the goal the goal was to get the degree and go to you know get the job and I just was not happy yeah I've it's crazy how many people kind of have something in their mind to finish uni sometimes it's parental pressure sometimes it's rebelling against your parental pressure but then you get there and I feel like a lot of people get trapped and think they can't leave because they've got a big college, a big uni debt above their head. I need to stick to this job. Then sometimes they end up with a mortgage as well. And it's like, oh, I stay in this job because of the security, but actually hate it. How did you build up the courage to change careers in your mid-20s? Look, it... it- it was my my grandfather who's no longer with us but was like a was 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 my mentor and one of my dearest friends he you know he one he could see i wasn't happy and he said look you've got really two jobs in your 20s one is to build the foundation for your life and the second is to be having fun and it appears to me you're doing neither you're not enjoying what you're doing and it appears that you're also you know not building the foundation and he said just you you can't spend your life not taking chances you know your parents risked everything to, to to you know have these have these opportunities this is a country which is fairly forgiving go and have a go and have a crack and um 
it really kind of inspired me to be like, yeah, I can have a go, you know. Um, it, it's easier now. The practice has grown, you know, knock on wood, everything's going well at the moment. But my first month, I made $17. Wow. You know what I mean? Like I was broke. I, um, <laughs> to save money, I would do the just the most random sort of stuff. Um, I'd have all of my meetings. My office was so small and so embarrassing. And this is once you became a lawyer. Yeah, once I became a lawyer. Well, so, so out of the, yeah, yeah, sorry. I want to rewind a tiny bit. How did you get out of finance? And then how did you? Because obviously, to get a law degree, it's not just walk down to the courthouse <laughs> and say, "Hey, I'm a lawyer." <laughs> There's a bit of study that goes with it. So yeah, how do you transition after spending so much time studying for finance, a commerce degree, having to cross it over, do another degree for law? How um yeah, how was that? So, so what I did, um, which was a bit insane now that I look at it, is I decided I'll go to night school. So I knew that when I started my legal career, I wouldn't have much money, that it would have to be a step backwards. So I worked all day and then at night I would study for law and I took every conceivable elective and for two to three years, my life just became becoming qualified. I was really tough. It was super duper tough. Um, you know, uh, I'm putting in the hours at the bank. I'm not fully tuned in there. I'm putting in hours at the uni. I'm not fully tuned in there. Um, and then finally I graduated and I was like, okay, cool. Now I'm a lawyer. I will go get a job that, you know, will, will, um, will give me some fulfillment. And I really thought because I had done the banking stuff, I'd go work in like compliance or I'd be looking at legal problems through like a business lens, but corporate law kind of thing. Yeah. Something like that, which makes sense, right? I've got the yeah. financial background for it, but like I couldn't get a job in there. The only job I could get was working, um, was working, doing um, criminal law matters. And one of the interesting things about crime is that it's one of the few areas where you really want your lawyer to sort of understand what you're about and understand your background and understand your story. Yeah, so empathy. yeah, empathy is everything in my, in my line of work. Um, and so at the time there weren't many young Middle Eastern lawyers. And so I started to represent a lot of Lebanese people, Afghani people, young men who had been falsely accused in some cases or had done the wrong thing in other cases. And I started building up a small criminal practice. I, and and I, I found that I, ha one, really enjoyed the work, and two, I was good at it. Mm. I was good at it primarily because I had time. If you don't want to know what wins lawsuits, time and money, because with time and money, you can sit down and really analyze. If, if you have space to think about a problem, you'll come up with a solution. Yeah, wow. That's so interesting. And then, yeah, obviously, there's so many different types of law, and that's something I think a lot of people forget when they hear, oh, I'm a lawyer. It's like, I mean, from the top of your head, give me like a handful of the different. Oh, I, so, so I'm, I'm a litigator, which means I do disputes, which means I go in front of courts. I go yeah. in front of arbiters. I go in front of mediators. I go in front of members of tribunals. And I try to resolve a dispute that you and I can't amicably solve. There are just as many transactional lawyers who are people who never see the inside of a courtroom. They will put together deals and put together ideas. But mergers and acquisitions lawyer, insurance lawyer, family <laughs> lawyer, commercial lawyer. The, the law is a wide church. There's space for everyone. Mm. There's people who are zany like me and a bit eccentric. And then there's people who are super straight-laced and, and really conservative. It's good like that. Yeah. I think it's great to have a bit of a balance between because quite often I feel like people who get in situations who have to come and use your services will have such a preconceived notion of who they're going to be dealing with. So I can imagine you representing people would give, especially young clients, maybe a bit more relatability to be like, oh, this guy can actually understand. Like if you've got a 60-year-old lawyer taking on your case for being found with drugs at a music festival, it doesn't feel like they could maybe represent you on the same level and maybe understand and empathize with you because they, yeah, go through completely different things in life. Uh, some of the stuff I've seen would blow your mind. I'll never forget this. I, um, I was at a meeting with a senior barrister, a very old, distinguished barrister, someone I don't use very much, but he's a very good lawyer, but not a particularly empathetic sort of guy. And I remember him belittling and badgering and like totally laying into some poor kid who'd gotten caught with like three, three um, MDMA uh, capsules at a music festival right after drinking two bottles of wine at lunch and being like, you know, you, you know, you need to sort your life out. You need to do this. You need to do that. And it's just like, well, that's not what the kid needs to hear right now. Like mm. he's, he, he's here. He's, he's miserable. He's ashamed. We don't need to, we don't need to drag him spiritually through that. And I remember experiences like that sort of taught me, no, that's not how you deal with people. We're not here to judge. That's the judge's job. Yeah. We're here to help. 
Yeah, and coming off sort of that, the mental health of young clients is something I think is important to touch on because I personally have never got in trouble with the law, but I've had a few close friends and one in particular get in a bit of a heavy situation and the mental health that comes on with that is crazy. And I know you've got some stories of people, yeah, that I'm sure are hard to share, (laughs) but are really important for young people who might get caught in a bit of trouble to hear. So yeah, what's been your experience with young people's mental health once being convicted of or once being accused of something? It's, 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 look, it's really tough. Um, And it's part of the medicine, right? So part of the medicine is you should go through stress, anxiety, pain, to teach you not to do it again. That's exactly. sort of part of the system that's built in. But what about people who are falsely accused? There's that's the, the worst, one. and it's and it's really quite upsetting when people jump down the throat of someone. Um, you know, roughly, I've got a you know, roughly, it might take a year or to two years for your matter to be dealt with, even if you've done nothing wrong. Sometimes you'll be denied bail that entire time. So you've got people who've served time in custody who, at the end of it, have done nothing wrong and they've been dragged through hell. If you're in a crisis, assume your IQ has dropped 50 points. That's what one of the major things that I've realized in my practice. doesn't matter how smart you are. When you're accused of something, when you're stressed out by something, your IQ just drops, you freak out, and um, it's it's really hard. You, people are living sort of in this limbo where um, they're just waiting for someone external to decide something critical to them. And uh, for me, young people in particular, one of the realities that needs to be accepted and understood is that for a young person, their perspective is limited by what they've experienced. So for example, a young person going through a breakup, their first true love, that is the worst thing that's ever happened to them. That is as, that's as bad as it will be. And so if you're going to, you know, if they choose a stupid way to use the vernacular of dealing with that, um, you know, going out and smashing a window or, you know, they don't have well-formed and well-developed coping strategies. It is, it is of course, their fault, but why don't we bring empathy and why don't we bring kindness and why don't we accept that, hey, that would be pretty tough to deal with. We've all gone through a first heartbreak, mm. you know. By the time you're my age, your heart's been smashed so many times against the wall. You're used to it. But when you're younger, you don't sort of see that. And so it's that limited perspective which makes them, which which really is so scary, particularly when you're going through a heavy situation because you go, I don't know how I'll get out of this. Yeah, what's been your experience? Because I know there's one story of um, somebody taking their life after they got not even convicted, right? It was in between being accused and, yeah, do you want to maybe yeah, kind so of this touch is- on that slightly? Just because I think people who get accused of something or find themselves in a bit of trouble might get something out of this to be like, Hey, your life's not over just because a period of your life is going to be difficult. It doesn't mean your life is over. Yeah. So I tell this story a lot and it's to me, it's about a lot of things. One of them is about the need for more, you know, <laughs> for, for more kindness and some, I, I, I think some larger reforms from a, from a, you know, political structure type situation. But I, I, I'll never forget one day it was, I think Friday night and I got a phone call at, the, you know, relatively late in the evening, it was a young man and he told me, I've just been caught at a, uh, at, a at an event um, with two MDMA capsules. And I was like, okay, well, you know, you're, you're okay. To be perfectly honest with you, if you get caught with two MDMA at a festival, it's not good, but it's also not the end of the world. It is a very fixable situation. It's very different than I got caught with a hundred and I'm selling them. And so, you know, I, st- I started talking to him and I remember very distinctly, he was very mature for his age, which is a weird thing to say about someone who's caught at the, at the you know, those hours. And I remember speaking to him and, he, you know, he was studying, he was working in his family's business. He was a first generation immigrant. He was hustling as hard as he could to sort of, um, to sort of make things work. So the next day, um, I didn't feel right about it. We made a booking to speak to me on Monday, you know, Next day, I contact him again. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Thanks for calming me down. And uh, tragically, uh, he, he took his own life before our meeting on Monday. He just felt there was no point. And um, it's really sad. It's yeah. really sad. It's really sad. Like, what a waste. And uh, yeah, you, you, what do you say? How do you think we could potentially prevent things like that? Do you think there's a gap in the schooling system on education around what happens if you do get yourself in trouble? Because... I personally have had zero, the the most I've learned about legal stuff is watching your TikTok. (laughs) So hearing stories like that makes me wonder how can we better educate young people 
for one, how to get representation if they are in trouble. Like hypothetically, I go to a music festival, I have two MDMA caps, I get caught by police. What should be my thoughts and when should I ask for my lawyer? What should I say to police? Because I think that's something that people who listen to this podcast it might happen to. So yeah, hypothetically, I walk into a music festival, I get pinched by police. When do I ask for my lawyer? When, Off- what do I have to say? What Officer, do I, not have- I don't wish to speak with you. I'd like a lawyer, please. If they won't get you one, officer, I don't want to speak with you. You know, do what you need to do. Do what you need to do. And um, I'll, we'll deal with this later in court. Just don't talk. Um, the, the funniest is I had a client whose English was a second language. Very switched on lady. Very switched on lady. Um, charged with really serious stuff. And all she kept saying is no lawyer, no talk. No lawyer, no talk. No lawyer, no talk. And it worked. She, she, you know, you don't need to speak to police. You shouldn't speak to police until you get legal advice. Like that's just, don't speak to them. They are there to do their job. Their job is different often from their objective and your objective is different. So just don't talk to them. Don't say anything. And once you're out of that situation and you seek legal advice, reach out to a lawyer. Our firm, for example, we do free first consultations purely because I don't want someone to go through that sense of dread and anxiety and, 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 and thing. Many of those people will never ever sign up with me. They're, they, they're not in the right geographic space. They can't afford me. They are, you know, they've got a family lawyer, but they're ashamed to tell their mom and dad. It's purely to kind of alleviate that distress. So the first thing is don't talk to police. If you don't get legal advice first, that's the first second, it will be okay. It does not matter how bad it is. There is nothing that you can do that is so awful and unforgivable that your life is ruined. All right. Now that advice will apply to 99.9999%. Maybe there is a 1.0001% where the situation is different, but 90, you can always make it better. Mm. Yeah. It's such good advice. And I think young people and anyone really who listens to that little excerpt will maybe have a different undertaking if they do find themselves in a bit of a sticky situation. I recently had on my podcast, a guy, Clint Kimmins, we did speak about this prior and you even said to me like, wow, what a case. What's the kind of consensus on self-defense between when does the line get drawn and what from your experience as a criminal lawyer, how hard is that to differentiate when somebody is defending themselves in a legal manner and then that invisible line gets crossed of excessive self-defense? It's very difficult. It's so difficult. So one of my areas of expertise is violence. I'm, I'm, I'm very good at cases that involve an element of violence to them. And um, self-defense, two things you need to know about self-defense. It must be objective and it must be subjectively appropriate. So subjective is I felt inside myself that the behavior I needed to exhibit to defend myself or someone else or property, because self-defense is a broad shield, was necessary in the instance. The second, it must be objective. So for example, if you pull out a knife on me, I can't pull out a bazooka, right? I can't crash tackle you, shoot you with a shotgun. The challenge becomes, and people don't realize this, especially when there's some alcohol involved and there's some Dutch courage, the incident itself might be five to 10 seconds long, and it may very well define the course of your life. I have a matter at the moment where the it's filmed, The whole incident is filmed. It is a 33-second clip. We have spent a year analyzing what happened in that 33 seconds to see whether it was self-defense appropriately or self-defense not appropriately. My strong advice is if it is safe to do so, remove yourself from the situation. It is never worth the potential risk of getting involved. Now, if it's them or you, it should be them, right? Mm. It should be them. And then you deal with the consequences in the courtroom complex. But if to the best ability that you have, extricate yourself from the situation. It is a very difficult legal question. It's inc- yeah, because obviously, I mean, I don't, I don't think you've listened to the full run out of no. Clint's story yet. You'll have to have a listen to the podcast. And maybe give me some <laughs> a bit of an update because it's um yeah, it's such an interesting one. Well, like I mean, my kind of small knowledge from what he told me was he def- gets in a fight. These guys come back to a party. Get he's getting his head kicked in. He's starting to taste blood. Go lightheaded. So he's potentially going to die so he grabs what he sees as a glimmer it turns out to be a broken bottle and starts swinging it to protect himself hits the guy's neck but then also from the altercation the guy has a small cut on his back so the three wounds on his neck were classified as self-defense but then that one on his back they can't classify as self-defense 
So he goes to jail for it. So it's like this small line. And then people all over socials are like, oh, he's a criminal, he's a criminal. I'm like, once you start to build a bit of empathy for people who are in prison, you realize that sometimes there is these minor discrepancies that end them in prison where it's like he was defending his life and as well the guy who he defended himself against now he's serving 20 years in jail so you know this guy's not a great person but yeah it's you've nailed it look one of the things that we as a society need to get better at is prisons should exist and they should exist to protect us from the worst of the worst because there are predators there are evil people there are people that are remorseless but the idea that prison is simply a place where we put undesirable people people who are often filled with trauma people who have mental health challenges people who have no support is wrong and we really need as a society to step up and do what we can to prevent that i cannot tell you the number of people that I go to represent and I go, hey, can you get someone to write something nice about you, a testimonial? And they go, no, I've got no one. I've got no one. You know, this is someone in their late 20s, late 30s. I've got no one. I've got no friends. I've got no support. You know, I've been abused in the system. At some stage, we need to maybe, you know, you're not the worst thing you've ever done. You're not the best thing you've ever done. You're who you are on an average Tuesday. That's that's my my perspective on it. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to look at it. And like you said, good people can do bad things and bad people can do good things. It's a bit of a vice versa. But yeah, there's um so many different... I feel like this is just a good opportunity <clears throat> to fire a couple of hypotheticals at you because I love a for, hypothetical. One, for one, it'll be a good TikTok content, <laughs> which we both love. But for two, I think it's a good one for situations that the average Joe might find themselves in. So this is one that <laughs> I'm not going to go into the story, but I've got this stalker that I've been dealing with police with it. But anyway, old lady, actually random. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tell you <laughs> I wouldn't I'll, have predicted that. I'll dude. tell you the story off air after, but hypothetically she knows where I live. So hypothetically she, I'm in bed. I wake up. She's in my room. I got told something from the police. I'm not going to tell you what they said I can do from a lawyer's perspective. What can I do? to legally defend myself on an intruder in my house. All right, intruder in your home. Uh, she's an old lady? Yeah. Okay, so she's an old lady. Does it change though? If Absolutely. I'm, it's, it's dark, I don't know. Absolutely. Lights the, are off. The defense that you have to use, well, it it changes until you know, right? So to I'll do that annoying thing where I'll answer your question with a different sort of <laughs> yeah, hypothetical. Had a case where a gentleman is a builder. He's working on a work site and because he's um, the, the the foreman goes, hey, if you want the houses at lockup stage, if you want to just crash in the bedroom here and you know take care of it over the night, that's fine. He's sleeping. He wakes up. Two fellows have broken into the house with a view of stealing various tools and other bits and pieces. They're on top of him. He freaks out, clobbers the guy, and like, and he's he's, he's basically naked, which is quite funny. Clobbers the guy, and then the guy bolts out of the building. He chases him down and starts fighting with him on the street until the cops arrive. The clobbering and fighting in the house, self-defense, chasing him out into the street, not self-defense. And so- Citizen's arrest? Well, he's claiming citizen's arrest, but it was unsuccessful because apparently the self-defense, the force that was used, it was excessive. You can use whatever force you need to use to extricate yourself from the situation. No more and no less. It's a difficult one. See what the police officer said to me. If that lady comes into your house, you can only use the force that she uses on you. And I was like... Wait, so wait, I have to wait for her to stab me before I can stab, not that I'd stab, you know what I mean? Yep. But like, I have to, like, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And the police and the police tend to charge everyone in one of these fracases, right? Because it's it's simpler. It's simpler and, you know, hopefully the court will figure out. In many ways, it's their job to, you know, um, to, to put it before a court for a court to figure out. But the least force necessary to get out of the situation. Okay. Which is tough because you've it's just woken so up. It's so subjective. Absolutely. Yeah. The subjective part's easy. The subjective part's easy. I can put you in the witness box and say, were you scared? Yes, I was. Did you think it was appropriate? Yes, I did. But then we look at it objectively. And that's, you know, what would a reasonable person do? It's hard. Yeah, what's a reasonable... Well, I've never that's, been in that's, that's, that's why we've got 12 jurors because hopefully they all amalgamate their views and amongst them we get to this consensus of what a reasonable person is yeah it's so yeah it just fascinates me certain things like that another one that's um pretty interesting as well with kind of the context of what's going in the on in the world right now consent laws consent education something that obviously is starting to be a lot more pushed throughout the schooling system but 
a lot of people are unaware of the actual laws. I had um, Chanel Contos on the podcast. I don't know if you've heard of Chanel. She has Teacher's Consent. The I think um, I have, yeah. Yeah, so she's um, a friend of mine and she's doing such great work. But I feel like quite often the lack of understanding of what the laws are is the reason why so many people step over it. Yep. What's your kind of take on this sort of he said, he said, she said, I'll give you a hypothetical. Someone's at a party, guy and a girl are both drunk. The girl, both are happy to go and sleep with each other. The girl wakes up in the morning, feels, oh, you know what? Like I didn't, I feel pretty bad about doing that. I've actually got a boyfriend at home that I wasn't meant to go and do that. I'm going to make a complaint to the police about this. Where does the line get drawn with the, who gets trusted, who like, you know what I mean? If it's her word against his, his life could be ended. Like I've got num- a new number of matters just I like that. I bet you do. Yeah. Just like that. that. That's actually, I've got probably four exactly mm. like that. And it's scary. It's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, re- regret is not rape to, yeah. to put it, to put it bluntly and put it quite vulgarly. Um, that being said, an interesting, underst- I mean, let's take a history lesson back in the day, women in particular, were subjected to the most grueling, horrible cross-examinations, basically saying you're a tart, you were asking for it. It was disgusting. I've read some of the old transcripts. And then the pendulum shifted. And all of a sudden, um, you know, every victim, victim, whether they were a victim or not, their word was taken as gold to the complete disregard of things like beyond reasonable doubt, the presumption of innocence, and it swings. That's how these things always work. When it's a large, important societal issue, we are terrible at getting the balance right. It Mm. moves from pendulum to pendulum. And I would say in the second scenario, woe be the poor person who's accused because you're never going to get a fair hearing. You have to work backwards. The, The law as it stands now is somewhat complex, and it's great that people are giving education on it, but you need affirmative consent. And affirmative consent is you must know that the person consents so being unclear which is the way that a lot of sexual encounters happen Mm. is dangerous for both parties therefore if you're impaired in some way be it through drugs or alcohol if um you know the consent is withdrawn at some stage it causes problems so you have to be very sure that the encounter is consensual yeah it's it's just like there's obviously you're dealing with cases like this right now it must happen so often and it's it's very, and it's a way that people can get revenge if that you know what I mean. It's it's scary. <laughs> it, it, it look and I don't actually look. There are people out there who are unwell and who use it for evil. I think that a lot of the time it's just a miscommunication between the parties and party A genuinely thought they had consent and party B mm. didn't convey it. There's a lot of authority for that particular proposition. It's very, look. It's hard being a young person now. These are questions that I, I worry about, particularly since I have younger siblings and 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 I deal with a lot of young people because. I, you know, it was not uncommon in my age, you know, have it, <laughs> the way to break the ice was to drink together and have mm. a few drinks. And, you know, um, that was a normal way of breaking the barrier down. So it's, it, it, it's, it's good that there's education. I think education is the answer to this, mm. you know, just in the same way that um, when pronouns and he, you know, he, he, him, she, her, they, them came out. I didn't know what I was doing. Eventually, young people take the charge. You guys educate the old card like me, and it's good. It's a good way to make people feel included. Yeah, I love that. It's an interesting kind of line of answers, I think. Thank you. Another one for young people. What's the legal discrepancy between under-18s committing a crime? Does that get wiped once you turn 18? So say someone, let's just talk about the difference between committing a crime and being convicted under 18 and after 18. Does that get wiped? Do your records stay clean? Do you stay in juvie? Does that cross into prison if you do something that has a longer offense? Yeah, something I just am pretty unaware of. Yeah, no no problem at all. So if you're under 18, you'll be sentenced. So uh, the law is written in such a way that when one is under 18, the bigger consideration is generally the rehabilitation of the young person. And so the legislation that's used, depending on what you do, will generally be... um, designed around you doing the right thing now if you commit a truly heinous crime as a young person you'll be subjected to a control order a control order is very similar to going into custody um often though you won't be sent to adult custody if there's a little bit of time but if there's a long time it's very different um your record depending upon what you do depending on the sentence you get depending upon um uh a few bits and pieces 
either it will be sealed and not brought up as an adult, or if it's more serious or it falls under a certain category of offenses, it will be. So the reality is it depends on the offense and it depends on what the offender did. When you're over 18, it becomes much less about rehabilitating you and much more about something called general deterrence. And general deterrence is I need to send a message that crime is bad and I send it by virtue of, you know, you get penalized, you talk about it on your podcast, people know that the crime is not allowed. Then there's also specific deterrence. How do we make sure you in particular don't commit the offense? And so with all of those different, I guess, factors that go into it, the, the thing to remember is under 18, generally speaking, it's a lot more about rehabilitating slash helping that young person, far less about keeping society safe. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that's a good one to bring up. I think young people, yeah, I just feel like this is all stuff that you never get taught at school and don't, like, I don't expect that everyone gets taught the whole legal system, but just, I guess that's what legal studies is for, that I didn't really do legal studies. But, but from- no, no, you, we should be taught, you know, like the number of people who don't understand how parliament works, they don't understand the two houses of parliament, they don't understand how government is structured is profound. It's not It's not anyone's fault. Unless you go out looking for it, no one will ever explain it to you. They expect you to vote at 18. You don't know what you're voting for. I'm pretty much like that, even being on it. And I've interviewed politicians. I'm friends. I've been to Parliament House and worked with... Do, do you want Mol- the 30-second spiel of how government works? Go for it. Excellent. It's Let's- a triangle, all right? So there's, the, so there's the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary. The executive are people who enforce the laws, people like police officers, people like the department. Then there's the legislature parliamentarians they write the laws and then there's the judiciary people like judges and lawyers who interpret the laws for a government to be effective and independent you need these three and they can't intrude on each other's duties i.e a lawyer can't tell a police officer arrest that man and a judge can't tell um a judge can't tell a lawyer you have to you they will tell you uh, sorry a judge can't tell a politician write this law so that's sort of how it works We have an upper house and a lower house in both the state and the federal government. The role of the lower house is to get legislation from the general public and then bring it up to the upper house. The upper house then passes it and it goes through a process by which it gets stamped or sealed or gazetted and then it becomes a law. It's really simple. It's not complicated, but no one ever sits down and explains that to you. And if you, and the problem is you reach 18, 19, they go, you're ready to vote, you this. You're embarrassed to say, I don't know. Because mm. you you got like, well, they've given me this responsibility. I must have just checked out of that day at school. It's like, no, they nobody taught you. And it's, it's for a democracy to be functional, people need to understand what they're voting for. They need to understand the role that they play in this. The fact that we have a vote is one of the most powerful amazing things and Mm. if it's not taught or treated with respect it sucks yeah i think there's so many things that we're missing in the school i think that's one thing that i always bring up like we should know politics better like i feel like i'm a pretty educated Mm. and switched on and curious person i've had politicians on my podcast and i still find it really difficult to wrap my head around the whole political system and the voting and voting for your state government for your federal government for your local government like this stuff's confusing but it should be something we get taught at school as well taxes i can almost guarantee there is multiple suicides a year because people get in financial situations because of not understanding taxes because of not understanding their finances and it piles up through their early 20s and then they get a knock on the door like hey you haven't paid tax it's like wait i didn't even learn that at school like it's horrible it's crazy If you have any young people, I'm not an accountant. I can't give financial advice. The ATO is really reasonable. Often, if you go to them and say, I messed up, let's enter a payment plan. Let's do this. Let's do that. More, I've I've seen them be surprisingly kind. Yeah, which they should be. They should be because you don't know. Yeah, exactly. You just don't know. You don't know. Look, in my line of work, sometimes people just don't know. They don't know that what I did was illegal or what I did was wrong. Here's a common one. If you're a P-plater, you're not allowed to use Google Maps on your phone. It's a driving aid. It's illegal. You will get pinged. No one tells you that. Wow. Yeah. TikTok's about to find TikTok that out. TikTok should know. <laughs> you can't use it. It is illegal to do so. And wow. it is a offense. People don't know that. All right. Now, some things you do know. You know you shouldn't go to a party, drink and punch someone in the face. You know that that's a crime and you know that there'll be a consequence for it. But there's these gradations out there. I don't know all the rules. Sometimes I'll read a fact sheet that a police officer has prepared and I won't be familiar with the charge. Because I don't deal with it every day. If I don't know all the laws and regulations, how can you expect the general public to? It's not fair. Mm, yeah, it's crazy. Like, And it continues to change and evolve. And I was listening to you on another podcast. It's like, 
learning the law is one thing, but then applying it to real life situations is a completely new kettle of fish. When I was in law school, same-sex marriage was not lawful. There was no such thing as cryptocurrency. There was no such thing as um, a, a lot of the stuff we're dealing with. And one of the cases I'm dealing with now, it's a same-sex couple arguing over the Bitcoin. I was never taught that in law school. We couldn't have imagined it in law school. The law keeps changing. The world keeps changing. The consequences and behaviors keep changing. And so um, a big part of it is understanding that you may not understand it. Going to a lawyer, they may not understand it either, but working together to solve it. Mm. Yeah, I love that. It's just been about yeah, understanding that we get in situations that are not favorable sometimes and we can get out of them. Absolutely. There's always room to maneuver, I have found, and there's always stuff that can be done that can make the situation somewhat better. Acting quickly is a really important one. Don't leave it. Lots of people, people fall, I find, into two categories. When they're faced with a crisis, they either sweep it under the carpet and be like, yeah, sure. Um, And that is more dangerous than the other one, which is jumping on it straight away. Sometimes though, because I'm a jumper, I find I jump onto a problem and the problem would have just solved itself if I just didn't jump on it. So they've they've both got their they've both got their flaws, but when you but just ask for help. Like ask for help, ask for advice, reach out. I guarantee you the law, it's I'm not the only nice lawyer. There is lots of us. There are lawyers that suck, there are lawyers that are great. Reach out. Someone somewhere would be happy to help you, particularly if you're a young person. If you're a young person, Adults and older people like helping you. It's one of the things that brings us great joy. Yeah, I love that. Getting to share what you've learned. And I heard you speak about this as well. The idea of it's great to learn from your mistakes, but it's even better to learn from somebody else's mistakes. And another thing that I want to chat to you about, which is probably one of the most important things we can do once we do find ourselves in trouble, is what your TED Talk was all about, which congratulations, doing a TED Talk is epic. I can only imagine that elation it would have felt when you got a standing ovation from a whole room in a TED talk. It's, your, your day will come, no doubt. Oh, I can't wait. One day, one day. Manifest. But the importance of saying sorry and taking accountability, what's what's the importance of that in your line of work? So it's so funny. Um, I, you know, I don't want to have tickets on myself, but my results in courtrooms tend to be quite good. And I really wanted to analyze why that was. And it's because I like to take a real interest in my clients. I will sit down. I will ask them a lot. I will get to know them in a very humane way. Many lawyers do. It's not unique to me, but I would say the better lawyers have that skill of having a genuine, meaningful conversation. And what I found, one, was I was surprised at how few people had ever had someone take an interest in their life, which was really, which was both sad and really low-hanging fruit. I think a lot of people would benefit from someone just talking mm. to them. And secondly, when you understand people, you can tell their story with a degree of dignity and respect that is different. I have seen cases where the person probably should have gone to jail or probably should have lost access to their child or probably should have faced a big consequence turned around because they have actually understood the mistake they've made. They have apologized with genuine remorse Mm. and they have changed their behavior. And so the formula for an apology is why, because, and why am I sorry? I'm so sorry, man. I'm, I'm sorry I was running late because I know that your time is valuable. And in the future, if we meet up, I will make sure I accommodate a bit more time. Simple formula, but very powerful because mm. the person listening goes, okay, he's got it or she's got it. They understand what they've done wrong and they're never going to do that to me again. So the first step is to do it. The, the first step is to say it. The second step, the hardest step is to do it because if you keep making the same mistake, mm. people uh, people don't like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good TED Talk. Anyone listening, make sure you go check it out. I'll put it in the show notes as well. It's um, yeah, super inspiring. It's nice. It's short. It's just punchy and <laughs> uh, you. you get a lot out of it. And yeah, at the end, the standing ovation was like, I watched that. I watched <laughs> that actually on the Uber on the way here. And I was like, far out. That seems like something I want to do one day. One last kind of little angle I want to chat to you about is obviously laws are different overseas and stuff. And there's been many cases that are quite internationally recognized over the last few years. And one that you have commented on a few times on your social media is uh, Maxwell, oh, the Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell trial. Yes. How does somebody get convicted for X amount of years for trafficking people to nobody and nobody else. What's your idea? I don't know how to, you obviously know what I'm sort of saying, but how um, is that possible that it can just be redacted and hidden to protect for security? Like it just doesn't make sense sometimes. I guess to address this question, um, you have to understand that different legal systems look at things through different lenses. And in some legal systems, it's far more permissible than other legal systems to hold back information for whatever reason that might be. Um, one of the challenges is to what extent 
are we entitled to know the case against us and know the case against individuals without you know causing distress and causing causing challenges and causing problems so when it comes to these high profile cases um it's it's right that people would be upset and offended that there is this critical information that's sitting there and you know people can't access it i am hopeful that maybe the reason that is there is that the police are preparing cases against these individuals mm. that could be a reason or it could simply be that as some um people seem to hypothesize that powerful people have done powerful things and have stopped that but um one of the power one of the rules of the law is that no one is above the law and if people engaged in that kind of disgusting conduct they should be called out on it yeah it's i mean well time will tell i guess time will tell with those couple international cases that one the tate case which i can't be bothered to go into the tate case <laughs> but maybe next time yeah that one is a zoo but the last kind of line of questioning i want to chat to you about is there's a f- big difference between being a lawyer and owning a law firm yes what's been the juggle like for you to not only start a law firm but also be a great lawyer because i know there's people who think oh i want to be a lawyer i want to be like suits i want to be like harvey specter <laughs> what's been the juggle for you and how much have you run into that is so different to what you're expecting when starting a law firm compared compared to just being a lawyer the 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 biggest mistake i ever made and i shouldn't have made it because i went to business school which shows you just how much formal education fails to prepare you for the real world is that by i thought being an exceptional lawyer automatically being an it made me an exceptional businessman. It didn't. The mistakes I made, I could write volumes, man. I could fill up libraries with the dumb stuff we did. You know, the 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 poor financial decisions, the um, the failure to invest in the things we needed to, the bad diary keeping. You have to understand the different skill sets. It took me to become a good lawyer. Probably, I would say I, I'm in my tenth year. Probably about eight. I'm still learning how to be a good business person, right? I am still learning, you know, how do I keep my employees motivated? How do I, you know, how do I make sure that, um, the, you know, how do I control in my margins? How do I market? How do I do this? How do I do that? They're not the same skill set. Mm. Um, you can be a terrible lawyer and a phenomenal businessman and vice versa. I can tell you I was a great, I was a really good lawyer and I was making no money because I didn't know how to run a business. And so, once you understand that they're completely different skill sets, they require completely different thought processes, life gets a bit easier. Yeah, that's cool. And it's awesome to see you now have really started to wrap your head around it. And I guess it comes back to that awareness and that taking ownership. You know what? I'm probably not that good at this. I yeah. need to relearn these new skills. And something that you have obviously done very well is get your face and your name out there. <laughs> the platform, I guess, that has been the biggest one for you has been TikTok. So when did it come to you to go, you know what? I want to be giving out good free information for people commenting on different legal matters because, yeah, there is such a lack of it out there. So for me, one of the darkest chapters in my life has been uh, the, 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 pa- the pandemic lockdown. It was terrible. Mm. Uh, I had a business. I've got like, I don't know, 10 staff. And financially, the courts are not operating as soon as the lockdown started. I'm worried about money. I'm worried about this. And I was just in a place of like a really bad place. I couldn't see my friends. I couldn't see my family. I'm an extrovert. So that's extra hard for me. And I was watching these weekly, um, these weekly, not even weekly, daily uh, press conferences by at the time, Premier Gladys Berejiklian et al. They were terrible. They made up these words. This is a singles bubble. This is an LGA of concern. Didn't explain it and then would leave. They'd be like, oh, like 100 people died. 300 people are sick. There's this and this. And I just sat there going, this is nonsense. And so what I did was I researched it and I wrote a really good article on LinkedIn of what is this and what is that? What is a public health order? No one read it. I think 50 people read it. And so I was like, well, I have time. I'll jump on TikTok. And I started talking about that particular topic and I started getting a bit of a following. And so it's so funny that I would never have done it was it not for that really dark time. Yeah. And now I look back with such gratitude that that awful thing made something really cool. Because I'm a big believer in the, the information's free. I'll give you all the information in the world for free. Mm. I won't do it for you. Doing it for you is what you pay me for. Yeah. But I will give you the information absolutely free because you can get the information. And information is power. And so it... The when I started getting some traction, I was like, okay, wow, there is something to this. And then no one's more surprised by my TikTok success than me. Genuinely. I'm 
I think it's a moustache. It it, it it has to be, right? There's a moustache there at the start. The moustache has been around forever. Oh, like, it's like It's like been like six years. The moustache has been around. I've... It, you, I've toiled in absolute obscurity doing what I like to think is good work. It's only now that like the spotlight's been shone right. on it. I'm an overnight success, ten yeah. years in the making, which is a, you know yeah. a very a very cheesy sort of thing to say. But you know you can't control what you're gonna. I, I found the Amber Heard Johnny Depp case interesting, so I commented on it. So I went global. I didn't. I, I genuinely was just fascinated by this weird case about two Californian Californian actors. Having a case about a piece in the new, I think it was the new was the Washington Post being heard in Virginia. That was weird to me. Why does that happen? And so, because I'm curious, I was like just sharing my curiosity, and people were as curious as I was. And I found that if you just be authentically yourself, because you can't be anyone else, social media will either embrace you or hate you. God, God knows I get a lot of hate. I'm sure you do as well. You can't do anything online without someone taking a shot, but it's been good to me. It's been really good to be able to share some of this information. And what's really valuable to me is the people who reach out and go, Hey, I saw this. It really helped me. Thank you. Yeah. That's why you do it. Yeah, absolutely. It's so nice getting feedback, knowing that something that you can share can really benefit and positively affect somebody else's life. Quickly going off what you started talking about on TikTok. The whole COVID thing, how did that work with them putting laws in that people got fined for, but then everyone got off? Where? How does nobody get held accountable of these people that took their own lives that, you know what I mean, made terrible, terrible things happen in their life because of laws that became unlawful? Am I, is that wrong? Or So so they were invalid, not unlawful. Invalid, so okay. so it's different. It's And I'll explain how. Okay. In times of crisis, governments do have the lawful authority to do things like they did. And there were numerous challenges in the courts, of which only one or two were sensible, and a lot of them were nonsense. Okay? Just straightforward nonsense, baseless, not correct. Without commenting on the underlying assumptions, one of the things that the whole crisis taught me is that the government really, I used to assume that there was a person in the government who had a plan for everything and simply put, they do not. Mm. And I was shocked at how, I was shocked at how poorly they were capable of dealing with things when everything is in peaches and cream. It is a tragedy the way that we handled some of that situation, in particular, the cruelty with which we dealt with a lot of people. Um, and I look back and I go, while it was lawful, I don't know how ethical it was and I don't know how right it was. Um, I don't think there was anything wrong with advising people to follow the health advice. I think that's what you should do. I don't think there's anything wrong with making people aware of the science. What I think is really wrong is, and we're seeing the fruits of it now, the inability to have a, a dialogue. So, you know, the reality was, if you looked at, if you looked at um, a cross-section, there was a lot of people who held... This is not right. This is not fair. And they had legitimate valid reasons for that. Then there was a group that was, this is not right. This is not fair. And they had some legitimacy in something. And then there was people who were just off the planet, making stuff up, saying mm -hmm. stuff that's not right. And I feel that what we did was push everyone into that camp, whether they were there you or not. question it without you being cancelled. Well, that's right. That's right. And, um, and sometimes that was unnecessary. Like you shouldn't, you sh if you've got someone who's, positive with symptoms you shouldn't have them going to hospitals mm. that makes sense that we stop that but the the absolute um the the absolute cruelty and the absolute volume that we did i look back on myself and i go did did we deal with that properly and the answer is probably not yeah it's correct the amount of things that were dubbed as misinformation and people were cancelled and people were villainized to then it all be kind of backflipped, but nobody who was put it, pointing the fingers ever got any repercussion. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah. Hang on. It's, it's, it, it's a hard one. It it's, showed a lot of real true colors, I think. And it's, um, I think yeah. what it really highlighted more than anything is that governments are woefully underprepared to deal with, with crises. And that to me is a real shame. And that's a real concern. For example, I never envisaged or entertained the idea that I would ever be able to hold something like a public office, because I always thought those people up there know something I don't. Having seen the way that they behaved in a crisis, let me tell you, I would have done a way better job. And I don't know anything about myself, but I think I would have done a better job. I think you would have done a better job. I think anyone would have done a better job. No one was saying, hey, let's look at it through this lens or that lens. We just had one approach. Yeah, and there it wasn't was, much perspective at all. There's no, there was no, there was no, you know, um, 
that we didn't take opinions from this person, that person, and 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 make a solution. Instead, we just you know you're with us or against us, and that's never a good idea. Oh, there was just so many. Like I literally had one. Me and my mate lived a two house away from each other, so we'd always spend time with each other. In like not locked. Oh yeah, I guess it was like Northern New South Wales lockdown period. But we like worked together. We surfed together every day. We're driving here to um to go for a surf like five minutes from our house in my in my car and then I got pulled over by police and they were like where did you um come from ask for our IDs and they're like oh you guys don't live together you're not allowed to be in the same car with each other without masks on and I was like come on and then that we had a coffee in the thing and she was like can you show me your check in from your coffee shop and I literally grabbed a takeaway coffee at my local coffee shop and the police officer tried to tell me that I had to. She's like, well, before you can drive home from the, because we just pulled into the surf where they pulled us over. She's like, before you drive home, you'll have to go to the chemist, get two masks, come back and pick him up. And I was like, where does common sense come in? And like, it's so, yeah, I was just like, some of the police officers, I was just like, when does the line get drawn before common sense and the police officer going, you know what, like. It's it's uh, hard for me because I don't ever want to be painted as anti-police because I'm not. But let me say this. The police is a large organization. And when an organization is large, you will have people who are excellent. You will have people who are good. And you will have people who are bad. Mm. And the reality of the situation is the authority with which we vest every police officer, be they excellent, good or bad, is huge. Mm. And so somebody needs to watch the watches because more often than not, they can say something or do something that will have a catastrophic consequence. We need to make sure that they're held accountable. My job, in part, is to do that. It's to make sure that the police officer mm. is doing their job correctly. And a good police officer, and I have many friends who are police, a lot of police officers reach out to me on my channel and thank me for the things that I say and do. A good police officer has no fear of scrutiny yeah, because they're doing their job properly. Yeah, because you must get fined sometimes when you're representing someone who's been accused of something. It is you against the police's word and there'd be some dodgy stuff I can imagine sometimes Absolutely. goes on with evidence and what they say and then camera body footage. It's like... I, I could tell you tales that would make your skin crawl on end. A big part of my messaging has always been I'm not anti-police because I'm not. Yeah. I think a vast majority of them are excellent and they do a good job. But the power that... We allow these people to walk around with firearms... And with the authority in certain situations to pull them out and utilize them. That is a big trust that we are giving them. And not everyone on that force should be on that force, mm. right? That's the reality. Not everyone who's a solicitor should be a solicitor. We need to be very, very cautious and we need to make sure that, you know, people imagine that there's all these tricks and slick things that you can use to get out of trouble. There are strategies that you can use that are within the lawful means to make situations better or worse. That's mm. that's 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 why we have defense lawyers. But if you think that it's a fair fight with the police officer, the resources of the state, the resources of all the crime labs, all the technology and all the money against Jahan, his mustache and his client, <laughs> you're demented. Yeah. It'll never be fair. Mm. I always have the un I am always the underdog in every single situation. We say things like beyond reasonable doubt. We say things like presumption of innocence. But let me tell you, if someone's accused of anything against, say, an animal, a child, or the elderly, automatically people assume they're a grub. Mm. In this country, we don't have laws that prevent your name being tarnished until such time as you're convicted. So if somebody was to make an outlandish allegation about you, tomorrow it would be on the news. And you couldn't do anything until two years later when you've gone through the court process. It's not fair and it's not nice and it's not right. And that's why I get a lot of upset and anger when people seem to think that I'm trying to help people get away with what they did. All I'm trying to do fair is try. prevent, yes, give people a fair day in court and to ensure that an innocent person doesn't go to jail. To me, that's when the system's failed. Mm. Man, it's, um, it's been so awesome getting to chat and have some hypotheticals, learn your story, why you do what you do and kind of the upbringing that you had because I think it's um really cool to see what you've created for yourself, not only defending people and trying to help them get through some of, I'm sure you'd say, the darkest moments of almost every one of your client's life. To be able to do that and give back and try and give people a fair trial is something you should be super proud of. And um, man, I'm, I'm pumped that I got to have this chat. I'm, hopefully, I'll never have to call you for work, but hopefully we can be mates. Absolutely, man. Um, but the last question I do finish every single Good Humans podcast with is, what does being a good human mean to Jahan? I'm going to get your last name wrong. No, you won't. Kalanta. Kalanta. <laughs> yeah. What does being a good human mean to me? Um, a, a good human being is one that understands that everyone you meet 
is going through a lot and that it is always hard being a human being. Even if you have a charmed existence, it's always hard. And the goal, let me tell a story. When I was a young lawyer, I thought being a great lawyer meant that you were the person that when they read your name on the letter or when they saw your face in court, they buckled and they cried and they felt bad. And I've now come to realize the true superpower is when somebody sees your name on the letter or they see you in court, they go, this is someone I can talk to and we can resolve this. Being a good human doesn't always mean making things better, but it always means not making them worse. Beautifully put. That was a very nice one. I've, I've asked that question to every single one of my guests and every answer has been completely different. And that was one of the most unique ones I've heard. So thank you. man, thank you so much for jumping on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Where can anyone find you? Last thing, if they want to find, I'll leave it all in the show notes. Yeah. But yeah, you, you can, can check out johankalanta.com or alternatively my law firm, Executive Law Group. If you ever need any legal help, we're here to help. Absolutely. Well, I'll leave that all in the show notes. As I said, thank you so much for catching up, letting me come into your office and um, have a bit of a chat. I know your time is very expensive. <laughs> this might be the most expensive podcast I've ever done. But this mate, one's on me. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for jumping on. Thanks, dude. Awesome. Dude, that was sick. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.